Welcome to the Self-Care Goddess Podcast, brought to you by me, Rita Savoya, founder of Savoya Self-Care Holistic Wellness. I'm a certified nutritionist and a holistic wellness coach for midlife women who want to rediscover their happier, sexier selves naturally without pills or side effects so that they can thrive as they age. I'm also the creator of the Savoya Self-Care Method, empowering women to nurture heart, mind, and body for transformative results. I'm on a mission. I'm on a mission to help millions of midlife women become their own health heroes. As a woman entrepreneur and a caregiver to aging parents, I fully understand the many responsibilities and generally stressful times women are living through these days, often suffering in silence, misunderstood, and putting themselves last. That's why each week I will be here for you, guiding you on your personal wellness journey, sharing expert advice from thought leaders on natural, practical, and simple solutions to help you thrive during the midlife transition. Get ready to listen to inspiring conversations about all things wellness, nutrition, mindset, mental health, fasting, hormones, menstrual cycle awareness and sinking, ancient healing strategies like meditation, mindfulness and breath work, and spirituality. Every month, I will also be featuring a small to medium-sized business to help spread the word on the amazing work they're doing so we can support them. And now, without further ado, let's get ready to rumble. Happy listening! Hello and welcome, lovely ladies, to the Self-Care Goddess podcast. And today we have an amazing show lined up for you and an amazing guest. His name is Chris Lamont. He is a clinical herbalist, speaker, educator, and manufacturer of herbal remedies. He is a graduate of the International College of Herbal Medicine, founded by world-renowned herbalist Isla Burgess. He also completed an 11-year apprenticeship in clinical herbal therapy and medicine manufacturing, Chris became a registered herbalist and member of the Ontario Herbalists Association in 2014 and has been a member of the board of directors of the OHA since 2015. He now practices clinical herbal medicine in the Hamilton area. Welcome, 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 Chris, and thank you for being here. Super excited about this show. Um, As you know, on this show, we help a lot of women naturally thrive during the midlife transition called perimenopause by embracing self-care. There are numerous symptoms that are associated with this change, such as weight gain, sleep issues, mood changes, mental fog, low energy, hot flashes, and many, many more. But today, Chris will be sharing some incredible herbal therapies that can help our listeners alleviate some of these symptoms and maybe perhaps even avoid them. Correct, Chris? Correct. Awesome. So before we start, tell us your story. I'm always super interested in why people do what they do and why people in our profession um, do what we do. So please share us your story. Sure. Uh, First of all, thanks for having me on. I'm excited to be here. And uh, I think we're going to get into some good uh, discussion today. Uh, So I haven't been a herbalist my whole life. I actually started my professional life as a musician. something that I did for exclusively for over 20 years. And I still do. Well, not during COVID times, obviously, but um, that was my thing. I wanted to be a rock star from the time I was born and, uh, uh, and, and enjoyed some success until the industry started to change, you know, um, uh, over the last, you know, 10 years or so it's become harder and harder to make a living. Um, and so I started to think a little bit about what I might want to do instead. Um, and then I remember the day very clearly. I had a, I had a very uh, difficult conversation with a, a band leader. Music is um, full of ego, as, uh, as most people know. And uh, I, I didn't take too kindly to this phone call. So I, I hung up the phone and I thought, okay, this is, this is the time for me to do something else. But I didn't really know how to do anything else. So I thought about what my interests were. I come from a medical family. So my, my father was a doctor and my mother was a nurse and they kind of instilled a, a love of healing in me and, uh, and also a love of nature. We, we spent a lot of time outdoors. And so I thought, how can I stick those two things together? And, um, and I did a little digging and I just kind of let it simmer. And I actually had a dream that night, which was this fully realized business 
where I lived in a cabin in the woods and I grew and foraged plants and I turned them into medicine and then mailed it to people. So the next day I got up and I tried to figure out what you would call that. There has to be a name for that. And I found a herbalist uh, in Toronto and I just went in and introduced myself. And she, um, she basically took an hour out of her workday and sat with me and said, okay, here's what you have to do. Check out these schools. Um, and, uh, you know, if you decide to enroll, you can come here and apprentice with me. And she basically just kind of walked me through the whole process. And that's exactly what I ended up doing. And uh, so now I've taken that and uh, turned it into, um, you know, a career, which, which usually involves uh, wearing an awful lot of different hats. Um, so I, um, I work in the clinic, as you mentioned, I grow herbs. I have a farmer friend close to me who's given me an area of his land to turn into a herb garden. I take those herbs, I make them into medicine. I'm a teacher, I lead workshops, uh, uh, all kinds of different stuff, which is, which is for me what makes it interesting. It's that variety. Um, and, and having that kind of variety always in touch with nature um, is, is the sweet spot. So um, I'm really happy to be able to take some of what I've learned and, and share it with you and your listeners today. Amazing. And thank you again for being here. So are you still going to keep the drummer job once things <laughs> again? <laughs> once we're able to actually do that safely again, um, I don't know if the bars and restaurants are going to make it through this whole ordeal, but if they do, then yeah, I'll hop on the drums again and, and uh, <laughs> people dance. Amazing. Welcome. Welcome again. Thank you. And super excited for the show and the information that we're going to be sharing with our listeners. So from your experience, what do you hear is the biggest challenge for women going through this midlife transition? Uh, that's a really tough question. And, and I think one of the things that makes the transition uh, so difficult is that it's hard to, it's hard to know what to expect. So there's the uncertainty of it. I mean, every time I look at the master list of menopausal symptoms that are potentially possible, uh, the, the range is mind-blowing. I mean, it can look like a whole, a whole uh, range of different situations. And so to prepare for what's coming is difficult. Uh, but also, I would say that acceptance of that transition is difficult on an emotional level, right? Um, a lot of people uh, feel like they're losing their womanhood. They're losing their, um, you know, to a certain degree, they're, they're what they have to offer society. You know, we have a lot tied up in our reproductive potential and our sexual function and things like that. And so I speak to quite a few women who, who are really struggling with the fact that they are saying goodbye to their youth um, which is certainly not the case. Um, and um, so there's, a, there's an emotional picture or a component rather, I think that's a better word, that is not talked about and um, can be devastating. And I think we need to talk about it and we need to, you know, help people understand that it's, it's natural. Obviously, everybody goes through it um, and, uh, and that it's not, it's not a loss of something. It's just a shift. Um, and so, uh, you know, I, I think that breaking menopause down into smaller bites is, a, is one way to start the conversation. And we have a bunch of different terminology. I'm glad, actually, that you started with the term perimenopause, because we tend to lump everything just into that term menopause. Um, so the way it's, it's officially broken down is we have premenopause, which is a very strange term for your entire fertile life. <laughs> um, it's not, it's not fertile. It's premenopause. Then we have perimenopause and that's the transition, right? That's what we're mostly going to be talking about today. That's where um, women tend to feel pretty awful in some cases. Um, and that's, you know, uh, you know, usually starts um, mid forties can start earlier than that. And then we'll usually, um, last, you know, anywhere from two to 10 years. Um, and then menopause. So menopause is, is a specific term defined when you have an absence of menses for 12 months. Once that has occurred, now you are officially menopausal. Um, and then we get into postmenopause, which is everything after that. Um, so 
so I think understanding the different terms and the different phases, I guess, um, and what to expect with those phases uh, is a little is a little bit. Um, it's helpful in in understanding uh, what's going on in the body. Yes, and thank you for setting that stage with regards to it being misunderstood, oftentimes mm. misdiagnosed because the symptoms are so um, very and vast as well, varied and vast. And, uh, and it is a natural transition or progression towards womanhood as well. And mm. it's interesting how we were just talking the other day with another guest and we were actually busting some myths and please, our listeners, if you haven't listened to that episode, go and check that one out because it really does put things into perspective. And one interesting thing was how in North America, it's seen um, as it's very stereotypically a very negative transition or, or point in life. And in other parts of the world, as like in Asia, it's actually called a second spring which, nice. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, it's like a rebirth of 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 you of a woman, and it's actually even better than what you've uh, lived because you're more certain of yourself. You have more. You're more mature. So it's it's even looked at as a favorable um, stage in life. And interestingly, this is the interesting part. A lot of Asian women do not have any of the symptoms that North American women do. So it's definitely a mindset. Yes, that's a huge factor, I'm sure. Um, further to that point, I came across an inter interesting little fact um, recently, which is that I've always heard traditionally the term climacteric or climacteric. I'm not sure how to properly pronounce that, but that's a term that's, that's traditionally used um, to describe menopause. And the reason for that is that it was uh, seen as the climax of the reproductive phase of life, um, which means that if the if if reaching menopause is the climax and everything after that is anticlimactic, which I think is a terrible way to look at it because it just feeds that idea that you've, you're losing something, you're giving something up, you're less of a person than you were before, and I keep thinking about the the women that I treat for menopause and. A lot of them are are pretty excited about not having to worry about mm -hmm. you know their monthly premenstrual symptoms and all the you know the menstruation products they have to wrestle with and just all of it they're free from all of that and they can it's that shift in understanding from it's a loss um, I'm becoming less of a person to I'm free from all that and now I've moved on to a whole other phase of life. I really believe that that is a core component of making the transition um, less difficult and, uh, and um, you know, in general terms, just feeling better about ourselves, which is not something that women are encouraged to do, particularly where their reproduction is concerned. I mean, there's so much shame attached to that. Uh, there's so much... Um, uh, hushing up of those discussions. I think that's really turning around <clears throat> more and more these days, but we, we've just got this long, long history of, um, of kind of trying to avoid those discussions. And I think that's been really harmful. For sure. And that's why we're here today is to keep that conversation going and starting that conversation. And hopefully our, our listeners will share this with other women as well and even have their own community and be open about these things so that we can really make a change. And it won't happen overnight, but we all need to do our part and, and start somewhere type of thing. You know, I think you, you asked me uh, initially why I do what I do. And, and this is a great example because one of the things that shocks me time and time again is how little people know about self-care. You know, uh, more often than not, I'm, I'm talking to people who have no idea how to take care of themselves, either to prevent a disease or to treat it. You know, people will run to the walk-in clinic every time they get a runny nose. And with menopause, with perimenopause and all the symptoms that can come with it, um, Prevention is actually a really important part of the picture. And so I get excited about teaching people well before those symptoms show up, how to fortify their bodies so that those symptoms are, if they do show up, are going to be a lot easier to handle. And that's why 
shows like this where we can actually impart some knowledge ahead of time are so valuable. So I'm really excited. Amazing. Yes. Prevention is key. Love that. Mm -hmm. Um, So in your opinion, what are the top symptoms and why, why do they occur? Because you must see some sort of trend with, uh, with certain symptoms over others. And I know there's a long list, as we mentioned before, but there, you know, there must be some top ones and, and just maybe go through some. And why do they occur? Kind of in mm-hmm. okay. on that. Yes, absolutely. So there are definitely some symptoms that are more common than others, um, but the list is very long. And I, I you know, apologize to your listeners that have symptoms that we won't have time to touch on, but it would take a whole week of podcasting to really cover the whole thing. (laughs) So yeah, we'll touch on, we'll touch on a few of the more common ones. Um, And we we can start with, uh, I just want to preface this by saying that um, there are, you know, with any kind of holistic healing modality, there are symptoms that we Uh, look at, but we also want to get to the root cause of what's going on in any kind of a situation. So for anybody going through perimenopause, there are certain things that we can offer, and then we can support that strategy with symptom specifics. So, you know, any formula that I create for somebody will be custom made to fit exactly what they need. Having said that, uh, I just want to stress that it's important to avoid Dr. Google, you know, self-diagnosis and self-treatment will only get you so far, but in some cases you can actually make the problem worse. There are plenty of situations I've been in where I've had to kind of unteach somebody what they have learned from the internet before we can start to teach them the proper way to do that. So uh, if you are having any kind of health situations, it's a good idea to get a professional opinion, um, no matter who you go to. Okay. There's my little disclaimer. Love that. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> um So one of the things I see a lot is weight gain. That's a huge complaint um, because it's not something that you can really keep to yourself. You know, if you feel like your physical appearance to the outside world is being affected negatively, that's going to play into your opinion about yourself and what's going on. So this is a, this is an important one. Um, And there are a few things going on with weight gain in perimenopause. The first obviously is that there's a natural process that happens as we age and, um, that process often involves a loss of muscle mass and an increase in body fat. This is normal. Uh, in fact, it's not necessarily a bad thing. When the ovaries stop producing estrogen, other parts of the body take over, not as powerfully, um, but the adrenal glands uh, do make some estrogen and some progesterone and uh, f- fat cells. So, you know, we want, we want, our perimenopausal women to be in good shape. That's important, but we don't want anybody to be completely fat free because that's actually going to impair your ability to make estrogen in the absence of the ovaries being able to do that. So having a little bit of body fat is really helpful. Now, before you get all excited about eating Doritos and Twinkies, (laughs) you don't want to have too much body fat. So, so uh, let me just back up here for a second. Uh, Getting into shape is, is one of the things that we can do as a preventative measure ahead of time um, with the understanding that we don't want to be super fit. Um, so, you know, running the Boston Marathon in your 40s is, is a, a noble goal, but it's going to result in less body fat, just as an example. Um, menopause uh, correlates with an increase in insulin resistance. So what that means is that uh, the glucose in the bloodstream isn't able to Um, get into our cells as easily. When that happens, that glucose is stored as fat. Um, And so there's a natural push towards uh, an increase in body fat. And we can um, sort of prevent that by working hard to normalize blood sugar. And there are some herbs that can do that. Um, But definitely uh, estrogen and progesterone affect how your cells respond to insulin. Um, and so, uh, you know, watching the diet, um, and, uh, making sure that we are not predisposed to insulin resistance ahead of time is really important. Um, amazing. That is great, great tips for sure. So why the belly fat? Why the muffin top? Why does it go there? And it's so hard to lose. (laughs) Yes, absolutely. Um, 
So for, for women in general, more so than men, fat tends to be deposited in the thighs and the hips and the breast tissue. With men, it's usually more the belly. That's sort of spare tire or the beer belly kind of a thing. Um, so it, later on in perimenopause, when the ovaries are producing very little estrogen, um, that creates a, a, a low estrogen level in the entire body. And this promotes fat storage in the belly, which is called visceral fat. Um, so as estrogen levels reduce, um, the fat deposit gets targeted more in the belly than it does anywhere else. And this can actually be a real problem. Visceral fat is linked as opposed to, you know, generalized body fat, visceral fat in particular. And that's the fat that forms in between your viscera, right? Your digestive organs um, around the colon and, and whatnot. Um, this is linked to all kinds of other um, health problems like diabetes and heart disease. So uh, again, we need to, um, we need to, you know, make dietary changes, make lifestyle changes and, uh, potentially use herbs to normalize um, blood sugar to avoid that. Um, and yeah, that's, that's why it tends to, to, uh, to get deposited in the belly. The other factor too is stress. Um, there's a, a higher ratio of cortisol receptors in the viscera uh, than the rest of the body. And so when we're pumping out cortisol in our fight or flight state, our stress response, um, those receptors are more active and that has a role in, um, in why fat is uh, deposited more in the viscera than elsewhere. So again, we have to manage stress too as a strategy. Mm -hmm. Of course. And so does this also uh, result in increase in hunger? It does. Uh, that's a good point. Uh, it's not just about insulin and estrogen. There are a couple of other hormones that uh, come into play as well. And there have been some cl clinical studies that show that um, levels of what we call the hunger hormone, which is called ghrelin, um, they're found to be significantly higher among perimenopausal women. Um, and that having low le levels of estrogen... So we've let me just take a breath here. There are there are two hormones generally involved with hunger. There's ghrelin, which encourages hunger, and then there's another one called leptin, which kind of shuts down that hunger response. So it's our it's our satiated hormone. That's what gives us a signal that we're full and we're satisfied. When we have low levels of estrogen in the later stages of perimenopause, uh, that can actually impair the function of leptin. So we don't necessarily get that signal of being full or satisfied as easily as we, as, as much as we normally do. And that in combination with an increase in ghrelin, we're not just dealing with, um, with uh, potentially elevated insulin resistance. We're also going to fight our desire to consume food because we feel like we need to. Um, so, so things that we can do, to kind of combat those hormone imbalances. And I'm specifically speaking about estrogen and progesterone, which is kind of the overriding uh, factor here. Uh, it's going to affect how those reproductive hormones affect other hormones like insulin, like ghrelin, like leptin. So fortunately we have some herbs that work really well to um, kind of soften the deficit of estrogen that comes along with this transition. And that, that kind of cascades into improving these other hormonal pictures that are all very connected. Um, such as, what are these <laughs> herbs? Because that sounds amazing. Because there is a lot working against us, right? It, it goes to that. It's not you. It's not your fault. It's your hormones at the end of the day. They really rule the world, don't they? <laughs> they really do. And, you know, we talk a lot about the HPA axis, right? The hypothalamus pituitary adrenal axis, but they're not separate from the rest of the endocrine system. You know, we have to, we have to uh, understand that if one of those glands, for example, let's say the ovaries or the adrenals, are out of whack, then it's going to affect the rest of the system because it's it all works in harmony. So yes, we have the hypothalamus of the pituitary, we have the adrenals, we've also got the thyroid, we've also got the uh, ovaries or the testes for men, um, and they all work in harmony. So, um, so basically, what what my my main strategy is with women who are going through perimenopause is to try to 
mitigate the uh, lost estrogen production production as much as possible. And we do that with uh, herbs. There are two classes of herbs that I really focus on. Um, the first are the ho- hormone balancers, and the second are the phytoestrogens. And the phytoestrogens are the ones that have the most confusion surrounding them. So there are some herbs which which have a natural ability to balance reproductive hormones. Um, and there are different ones for men and women. Um, but the phytoestrogens are the ones that really come into play here the most. Um, plants don't contain estrogen. So it's a bit of a misnomer. Um, what, what phytoestrogenic plants do is they, um, they mimic our own endogenous estrogen. So, so essentially what happens is on all of your cells, you have estrogen receptors on the surface and normally estrogen will come along and it's the key that fits into the lock, which is the receptor. And when the key is in the lock, then the door opens and that creates a whole cascade of events that happen inside the cell. These phytoestrogenic plants are a key that fits into the same lock. So they can dock with an estrogen receptor but they don't open the lock all the way. They open it partially. So um, we do get a cascade of events happening in the cells, similar to when our own homemade estrogen docks there, but it's, it's, it's muted. It's a muted reaction. So in your younger years, when you're having hormone imbalances for whatever reason, it's usually estrogen dominance. Um, having a weaker estrogen in that parking spot, for a mixed metaphor, it's going to reduce the overall estrogenic load. But in perimenopause, when we're starting to see an estrogen deficit, that partial um, activation of the estrogen receptor can, can actually improve the estrogen picture uh, to a certain degree. Um, and that, again, is not going to stop the transition, but it's going to make it smoother. So we can introduce phytoestrogens uh, into a herbal formula for a perimenopausal woman. And uh, that is going to be kind of the foundational layer uh, of a herbal formula that will reduce um, symptoms across the board. And then we build on that uh, more specific herbs, which will target the symptoms that that individual uh, is experiencing. So that's, that's, I'm giving away my magic strategy here. I know. I love that. That was a lot of information and super, super helpful. And even the visual now I have of the image that you've, uh, you've created for us. So that was amazing. Thank you. So does that work the same for progesterone? Cause sometimes you could also be low in progesterone. Would you? That's right. And, and, and in fact, uh, perimenopause is not just about estrogen, um, uh, uh, down, what's the term down regulating, I guess. Um, progesterone is also, uh, produced in less and less amounts as, uh, as a woman moves through perimenopause. So yeah, it's, uh, in the reproductive years, there's an important ratio between, uh, estrogen and progesterone. In a lot of cases, estrogen dominance is not just too much estrogen. It might actually be not enough progesterone. And that's where the hormone balancer uh, herbs really play an important role. Obviously, in um, in perimenopause, estrogen is the major player, but we can't forget about progesterone as well. So herbs like chase tree berry, for example, um, actually acts more on progesterone than it does on estrogen. That's Vitex, I think, right? Vitex, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. You remember your Latin terms. I love that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so yeah, we have we have quite a few things to choose from, uh, and then in in other terms, uh, preventative wise, uh, we can look at supporting the liver, which plays a really important role in the breakdown and elimination of reproductive hormones, and then uh, fortifying the adrenal glands as well, because as we said earlier, um, when the ovaries stop producing estrogen, the adrenals uh, really take over, um, and so if they are stressed. Uh, due to stress, <laughs> if they're overtaxed or fatigued uh, from from years and years of chronic stress, then they're not going to be able to perform the way we want them to. That again is also going to make that transition a little bit more bumpy. So, um, so we have some some strategies that um, lay the foundation for getting through this transition easier. And then uh, again, with specific symptoms like weight gain, we can look to 
um, herbs that can help to manage blood sugar. We call them hypoglycemic herbs. And they're uh, actually a lot of them are, are foods that we love. We have cinnamon, we have blueberry, we have fenugreek, we have garlic um, that uh, can be used to help to normalize blood sugar. And that's going to set us up for success ahead of time. Amazing. Okay. That's awesome. I love, I love all of those. <laughs> so let's go to the next um, symptom, which is insomnia. And a lot of women and our listeners as well do have problems sleeping. Now, this could also be because of their, the night sweats or the hot flashes. So they're waking up for that particular uh, reason in the middle of the night or they're just stressed um, overall and they can't fall asleep. They can't get to sleep because they're anxious. And this obviously could be because of low nutrient um, diet or refined processed foods that they're, um, they're eating as opposed to whole foods. And unfortunately, or yeah, like adolescent, like our adolescent years uh, during pe uh, perimenopause, there is a transition in sleep patterns as well. So tell us a little bit more about insomnia. Well, you're, you're absolutely right in that um, more often than not, at least in my experience, um, insomnia is a, is a secondary effect from other symptoms like hot flashes and night sweats. Absolutely. Um, there is a, a, a hormonal factor. Um, progesterone in studies has shown to have a beneficial effect on sleep. And so as levels decrease, obviously that's not going to have the same beneficial effect, but also we tend to pr produce less melatonin as we age as well. So there are some, some things going on there uh, on a chemical level. Uh, but what I found with my patients is that it's usually a product of, of something else. Um, and sometimes it gets extreme. I have a, a case I'm going to share with you uh, later on that uh, was, was quite shocking. This was a person that got two hours of sleep a night at the best of times. So it can be a serious problem. Um, and so as we deal with those other symptoms, the hot, the, uh, the hot sweats and the night flashes, <laughs> uh, then uh, that's going to obviously help um, people sleep better. What we need to understand is that there are different types of insomnia, right? There are, there's sleep onset insomnia, which is uh, defined by difficulty falling asleep at the beginning of the night. There's sleep maintenance insomnia, which uh, often sees people wake up you know, two, three, four o'clock in the morning consistently. And then uh, there's also um, an issue where we wake up earlier than we want to. That's fairly common too. So there are different things we can do for the different types. Generally, sleep onset insomnia tends to be stress and anxiety related. We've got, um, you know, an overactive uh, mind. We're worrying about our to-do list for the next day, et cetera, et cetera. So we have a couple of strategies that I found to be quite helpful. And, and this really revolves around sleep hygiene. And that just refers to our bedtime routine. You know, we look at screens a lot. Um, <clears throat> we maybe eat too late. We were just talking about this before we started. Uh, we eat too late at night. Um, we, the, the room's too hot. Uh, there are all kinds of things that can contribute to difficulty falling asleep. So we need to create a... And this is something that listeners can easily do at home right away is improve sleep hygiene. Um, one of the things that I find has helped a lot with patients that have um, mental activity is to have um, a, a little notebook and a pen beside the bed. And if you're going through your list of things that you need to do that day or list of mistakes you made, um, you know, the day before, uh, to make, you know, to, to actually unload your mind by putting it down on paper. So if I'm worried about all the things I have to do tomorrow, um, it tends to have to do with concern for forgetting something. I don't want to miss anything. I need, I need to make my list of, uh, of targets I have to hit the next day. If I write it down in my little notebook beside the bed, I can usually fall asleep much easier. Um, so uh, there are some there are some non-herbal things that we can do around sleep hygiene, and then the the herbs that I tend to give to people with sleep onset insomnia are the sedative herbs, the hypnotic herbs, the ones that will either relax the body so that we can fall asleep naturally, or the stronger ones which will uh, make us feel drowsy and put us to sleep. Um, when it comes to people that wake up in the middle of the night, 
that can be a range of things from um, uh, liver troubles to blood sugar issues. So we have a separate uh, class or set of herbs that we can use for those. And then people that wake up too early in the morning uh, can often have issues with cortisol production. Um, and so there's a whole other set of herbs that we can use for that. Um, but uh, it's really a, a matter of understanding what type of insomnia we're dealing with and then figuring out what it is exactly that's causing it. And it, uh, this goes back to your earlier point about really identifying what the root cause is for you yeah. to be able to actually give the right herbal therapy that's going to work and address the, the symptom, right? So I love that. Yeah. So I actually want to share with you um, a research that I came across, and then we can talk about the next, um, which is related to the next symptoms, which are hot flashes and night sweats. Mm-hmm. And so basically this study used Dong Kui mm-hmm. and it was a placebo controlled study from 2003. It was 55 postmenopausal women who were given Dong Kui and chamomile instead of HRT, okay. hormone replacement therapy. And they had an 80% reduction in hot flashes after one month, which is amazing. That is an amazing result. Uh, and doesn't surprise me at all. Dong Kwai, which is Angelica sinensis or Chinese Angelica, is uh, a fantastic hormone modulator and phytoestrogenic herb at the same time. So it kind of covers both of those. And I use it. I use it all the time. And and I have to say, hot flashes and night sweats tend to be symptoms that respond very quickly and very well to to herbal treatment. It's just uh, it's amazing to see how quickly women can experience relief. Uh, from from that kind of therapy, so that's that study result doesn't surprise me in the least. Um, but eighty percent is a pretty profound result, so I'm happy to hear that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So why do we get the hot flashes and night sweats? <laughs> well, this is this is a great example of that interplay of the endocrine system. Um, we so th- again, this is this is by far the most common symptom that I mm-hmm. encounter with patients. I mean. I think I read recently that up to 75% of women experience uh, hot flashes and night sweats to some degree. Um, And it generally starts in the chest and tends to move up the neck and face and can be overwhelming at times. Um, So what's going on in the body in in very basic terms is that um, we have a a signal. So in the hypothalamus, which oddly, is not only the uh, estrogen regulation center, but also the temperature control center. We can already see the connection there. Um, The body has feedback systems running all the time. It's always checking the blood and the tissues and the interstitial fluid to see how much of this hormone do we have, uh, how much do we need to make. It's just always being regulated and monitored at all times. So the hypothalamus um, in perimenopause gets a message that our estrogen levels are too low or that they're fluctuating. That's, and, and that's another thing that we need to, I'm sidebarring like crazy, but uh, perimenopause is not just estrogen shutdown. In fact, one of the reasons that the symptoms are so volatile is that it's fluctuation. Um, sometimes we have way too much estrogen. Sometimes we have not enough. Uh, and, and this is why the symptoms of perimenopause can be so dynamic. But with hot flashes and night sweats, the hypothalamus is um, detecting that we don't have enough estrogen or that it's not normalized. And so the hypothalamus sends a message to the pituitary gland, which is kind of the master gland in the body. Um, Hypothalamus tells the pituitary to ask the estrogen, uh, sorry, to ask the ovaries to produce more estrogen. And the pituitary does that by releasing a hormone called follicle stimulating hormone. It's stimulating that that um, follicle in the ovary to produce more estrogen, and it will do this again and again when uh, the hypothalamus, when the body rather doesn't get the result that it wants, it floods the body with adrenaline. So uh, that is um, the cause of what is essentially a body temperature reset. So kind of like when we have a fever our thermostat gets reset a little higher than normal. And that causes a wave of heat um, that uh, uh, is 
again, the most common symptom I come across. The other thing that's interesting that happens is that the blood vessels in this situation become more sensitive to the temperature signals as we're going through perimenopause. And so they will um, dilate, um, bring heat to the surface a lot more easily, which is essentially what that flushing is. Anytime we turn red and feel waves of heat, we're bringing blood to the surface um, so that we can uh, release it. And this is where the sweats come in through evaporative heat loss. That's why we sweat because it's a method of, of uh, releasing heat from the body. So this whole thing actually initiates in the brain um, because uh, of a, an attempt to correct this lack of estrogen. So um, this, is, this is how interconnected the endocrine system is. It's really quite fascinating, I think. Amazing. Yes. I mean, there is an aging theory that says that once our endocrine system doesn't is out of balance and doesn't work anymore, like it's supposed to, that mm -hmm. kicks off the aging process. So there's mm -hmm. a, a theory about that. And I, now we know why it's like involved in so many of the bodily functions that allow us okay. to thrive. Absolutely. And, and we, again, have to keep the thyroid gland and the adrenal glands in mind, right? The thyroid is kind of um, oversees metabolism to a certain degree. Um, one of the products of metabolism is the creation of heat. Uh, and the adrenal glands, if they are not able to function properly because of years and years of stress, that's going to cause all kinds of problems too. So um, it's all interconnected. So some remedies, um, herbal remedies that you would uh, ask your clients to take? Uh, absolutely. Aside from the, you know, the, the sort of base strategy of hormone modulation and phytoestrogenic uh, herbs, uh, we can look to herbs that are called adaptogens. And they're the ones that help the body uh, deal with stress. That's going to take some of the workload off of the adrenals, which is going to help. Um, we have the uh, nervous system herbs, <clears throat> pardon me, particularly the nervous system tonics, uh, things like motherwort and oats and um, linden flower um, that can really help a lot. We have adrenal tonics. We have all kinds of herbs that help support the cardiovascular system. Um, another one, a specific one that's interesting is sage, which is one of the few uh, herbs which can actually reduce sweating. Um, it's a drying herb um, and, uh, and it goes a long way to, uh, to stopping those night sweats uh, from being so bad. The, the easiest thing for your listeners to implement right away uh, is to avoid common triggers for, uh, for night sweats and hot flashes in particular. Things like caffeine, that's again going to encourage the adrenals to, to release adrenaline. Um, smoking, uh, eating spicy foods, those are herbs that also dilate blood vessels and that's going to move heat to the surface uh, as well. Alcohol, uh, tight clothing, uh, tight clothing is gonna help keep heat in. Um, and uh, then again, dealing with stress and anxiety, that's so, so, so important uh, in all of these. Thank you, these are awesome. Like, you know, that our listeners can actually adopt if they're having this particular or these particular symptoms. So these are really, really good. And I mean, I love spicy foods. So in terms of the, the uh, avoiding these common triggers, that's just during the period of perimenopause, because then once you're over that period, you transition into menopause, you can start kind of reintroducing these foods. Absolutely. Yeah. And that's not a step that needs to be taken. Um, as a preventative measure either. In fact, spicy foods are really good for your cardiovascular system. Um, but when you are dealing with hot flashes and night sweats, particularly that are disrupting sleep, I mean, what's the first thing other than a runny nose that happens when you eat hot food? You sweat. Yeah. And, uh, and, and so that's something that we can temporarily eliminate from the diet that's going to um, otherwise contribute to those hot flashes and night sweats. Yeah. So yeah, I like that word better. Temporarily <laughs> avoid these common yeah. triggers <laughs> yes, exactly. during exactly. the transition. And then you can reintroduce them once you're um, on 
onto the next stage. Um, so that's, that's awesome. Thank you. Those are some really, really good um, tips. So moving on to the next um, issue that we've actually identified or symptom is, uh, is moods, right? Mood shifts, mood swings, depression, anxiety, irritability, where it actually affects not only yourself, but it actually starts affecting your, your relationships too at work. And so tell us a little bit about what's going on there. Absolutely. Um, so you hit on a number of them, depression, anxiety, irritability is a common one too. Um, and these are symptoms that, that many women deal with uh, premenstrually as well. Um, but it's something, uh, I find that um, it's rare to find one that's isolated, right? Just depression or just anxiety. It tends to shift uh, between them. And, uh, you know, there's, there's definitely a uh, uh, a hormonal component to that, uh, although you know it's not really well understood at this point. Um, there have been studies that look at levels of neurotransmitters uh, during perimenopause, and um, changes in neurotransmitter levels have not really been convincingly evident. Um, but there, there is a, a belief that uh, certain neurotransmitters, particularly serotonin, uh, play a big role in uh, in these um, in these changes. So, like insomnia, um, mood swings, yes, are hormonal for sure, but they can also be a secondary result of other issues, like insomnia itself. The less good quality sleep you get, the more grumpy or depressed or anxious you might end up being. Uh, you also touched on the relationship effect too, and those moods are intimately tied to uh, not only our work and friend and family relationship, relationships, but our romantic relationships as well. And we know, uh, and we're going to get to this shortly, but, um, you know, our sexuality is so intimately tied to our hormonal picture that uh, we can't help but um, experience some changes there as well. That's another common symptom. Um when our sexual function is impaired, uh, that's going to affect our mood in a huge way, not just because of our, uh, our, our self-image, uh, but also how it affects our relationship with our partners. And um, so that, there's a huge impact there, of course, um, as are the beliefs uh, about what aging means and, and that loss of womanhood that we talked about early on, they all play into to mood. Um, what we found in studies is that women who have severe PMS symptoms in their younger years actually tend to have more severe mood swings during perimenopause. Um, you know, women that have a history of clinical depression seem to be really vulnerable uh, to depression during menopause. So there are things that are kind of signals to us early on um, that can let us know um, that we have work to do in a particular area. So again, there are lots of different herbs that can help. This tends to be one um, that we have to play with a little bit, um, depending on what the predominant mood issue is. So if it's if a person has um, depression as sort of the main mood issue, and maybe there's a bit of anxiety thrown in there, well, then we have are antidepressant herbs. Uh, we have some stimulating adaptogens which can help to elevate the mood. Um, a lot of people will actually, in, in depressive states, will self-medicate with caffeine. Um, and so that's a bit of a, a difficult situation because too much caffeine can have a detrimental effect on the adrenals, which we already know is very important here. But if we tell depressed people to remove their stimulation, we can actually encourage them to become more depressed and that's not what we want to do. So, so we need to take a very careful uh, approach to caffeine consumption by, you know, considering what somebody's going through. Now, if it's more, um, if somebody's more fired up and they're uh, easily irritated and they're anxious and they're, and they're overstimulated, well then uh, we have a, a, a range of herbs, which are more relaxing and soothing and calming that we can turn to. Uh, we have herbs that can help to manage stress, as we talked about before. Um, and then we've got some other things too that are that are not herbal related. Exercise is one of the, the, the best things, and there's tons of science behind this in terms of um, improving mood. 
We've also got, um, back to the neurotransmitter uh, conversation, um, we've got the idea of gut health. Um, and, and I'm specifically thinking about probiotics at the moment. The, the gut microbiome is responsible for so much of our um, nervous system function and our mood. Um, our friendly gut bacteria actually produce the majority of um, a number of different neurotransmitters, serotonin and dopamine in particular. And so if our gut's not functioning properly, if our microbiome is compromised by uh, you know, use of antibiotics, stress, um, leaky gut syndrome, and inflammation, uh, then we're not going to be getting those um, neurotransmitters in the amounts that we need. The other thing to keep in mind is that there's always a conversation going on between the gut and the brain. In fact, most of that conversation is upward. It's from the gut to the brain. And so we can't ignore gut health uh, when we're talking about mood and nervous system function. So that's another thing that we can, we can do ahead of time to really get the gut in shape, optimize digestion, and, um, and that can go a long way to uh, affecting mood, which is something that um, a lot of people uh, don't understand, that connection between the enteric nervous system and the central nervous system. Amazing. It's so, so important. You're right. And I'm glad you touched up on that for sure. And it's just so, it's so holistic that it really needs to be looked at, looked at from a holistic point. And again, asking the right questions, working with a healthcare uh, professional and super important because you, you can't, you can't figure all of this out by yourself. It would be very, very overwhelming. So I'm just so happy that you've brought that up as well in terms of exercise. And that's why when we run, we feel so good because we're actually releasing endorphins. And I think it's about the gut produces 70 to 80% depends on what you look at of serotonin, which is that feel good hormone. So amazing that you've touched up on that and how important that is. So what I love about herbs is that they're less aggressive route than obviously the pharmaceutical route, mm-hmm. but um, I'm, I'm part of a lot of groups um, in the perimenopause menopause space. And there are a lot of women on there taking pharmaceutical drugs to help with these mood issues, just because there's just so readily available now. And it's kind of the go-to as opposed to really figuring out the root cause and not just kind of putting a band-aid solution on the, on the symptom itself. Um, mm-hmm. But it definitely, it obviously takes a little longer than the pharmaceutical. So I know the the answer is probably going to be, it depends to this question. But on average, what would you say, how long would it take for somebody to start? And I I guess they got to put all the other things in order. And um, But just on average, if somebody was going through some anxious or irritability issues, um, when they do take um, a herbal remedy, and also address those other root causes, what would mm-hmm. you say it takes? How long would it take? That's a good question, and one that I get all the time. And you're right, it is difficult to answer. Um, and that's because, you know, with a, with a holistic healing modality, whether it's herbal medicine or nutrition or naturopathy or, you know, what have you, it's not just about the, the medicine that you put in your mouth. The way that it is with pharmaceuticals, um, you know, we have, we have work to do. And, and this type of approach, the natural healing approach, isn't for everybody because uh, our interest is not just in relieving symptoms. It's also getting to the root cause of, of, of health issues, whether it's menopause or anything. Um, and those root causes are often found in our diet and our lifestyle. Um, we are very complex beings. Uh, we, we tend to think of uh, um, even in the natural healing world, we, we tend to talk about mind, body, spirit as if they're three separate things, but they're not. It's all interconnected, and we and we have to heal from that perspective. I mean, when you go see a doctor, uh, they, uh, with the exception of general practitioners, they specialize in in a certain body system or sometimes in a certain organ, um, and they don't often talk to each other or understand each other. And so we're trying to uh, understand what's going on in the whole body as much as possible. Nobody can know it all. Um, and, 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 and that understanding is very complex, as is the treatment. So um, what I'm trying to say is that the more you stick to the program, the better the results. That's, yeah. that's the caveat. Um, but in terms of how, how fast the herbs take effect, 
Um, so the, as you pointed out, the, the benefit of herbs compared to drugs is that herbs are tend to be a lot more gentle and a lot more safe. So we're not going to get the same side effects that we will from pharmaceutical medications. Um, the downside is that they work much slower in a lot of cases. So we have to have patience. Um, having said that, with herbal treatments for perimenopause, I, I have seen results happen very quickly. <clears throat> Again, it really depends on the, the symptoms. Um, hot flashes, mood swings uh, tend to respond really quickly. Sorry, hot flashes, night sweats tend to respond very quickly. Mood swings, a little bit less so. Uh, and that's because um, it's, it's so complicated in terms of balancing hormones, uh, boosting that estrogenic response, improving gut health. There's an awful lot going on. Um, and so it, it depends on the severity of the symptoms and it depends on how willing somebody is to make those changes. Uh, some people don't want to stop eating Doritos. Some people are fully committed at, to a major shift in diet and lifestyle and, and, and people that, uh, commit to it, see results very quickly. So I've seen, I've seen hot flashes and night sweats improve in a matter of days, um, one case, which again, I'm going to share with you shortly, um, <clears throat> the patient um, was taking about half the dose of the herbs I gave her that she was supposed to. And she, for about six months, was was sort of saying, uh, you know, I, I, th I feel a little bit better, but I'm still waking up at night and I'm still I'm getting hot flashes all the time. Uh, once I finally realized that she was underdosing, we corrected that problem. And within a week, it was night and day. It was a completely different situation. So, so the herbs can really have a profound effect with mood. Uh, it's not usually that fast, uh, but I'm looking to definitely see uh, some sort of improvement within a month or two. Um, again, if, the, if let's say the, the situation is depression based, if I'm dealing with a person that's struggled with depression their whole life, their whole life, um, it's going to take longer right? If it's a chronic condition, it's going to take longer. Um, if the uh, depression just kind of came on as perimenopause began, well, then that's going to probably take a lot less time to deal with. So you're right. It's a difficult question to answer. Um, there are a lot of factors to keep in mind, but, but, uh, but certain results happen very quickly. I was trying my luck there, but uh, I kind of knew the answer to that. But you were, no, no, you were really good at uh, helping with the whole response time, what gets a faster response and given the circumstance. So that that's that's clarified a few things for sure for our listeners as well. So um, thank you. But I think we are running out of time. And I do suggest that we do have a follow-up um, session with the rest, because we have a whole, um, a couple more symptoms that I'd love to get into details with and some case studies as well. So what I'm going to recommend is that we actually have a follow-up um, session and so that our listeners can continue this amazing um, and share this amazing information that you've been sharing with us. What do you think? Will you be back? I think, I think part two sounds fantastic. And, uh, and it, that kind of speaks to how complex the whole situation is. We need more time. Yes, exactly. So um, I want to thank you. Thank you. Thank you for this amazing conversation and for joining the Self-Care Goddess podcast and helping to keep the conversation, as we mentioned before, going by empowering our listeners and women all over the world to discover such wonderful holistic herbal therapies to help us thrive in the pursuit of good health, happiness, vitality as we age. Now, where can people find you? Oh, well, thank you again for having me. It was, it was really fun to have this discussion with you today. Um, I'm pretty easy to find. Uh, my, my brand is Chris the Herbalist. And so uh, all of my, my website is ChrisTheHerbalist.com. All of my social media is Chris the Herbalist. And uh, so uh, uh, I just decided to keep it simple. <laughs> Amazing. And I'll also put that in the show notes. So thank, thank you so much. And I cannot wait to have and continue this conversation. I look forward to it. Thanks so much. Okay. Bye. Bye. 
thank you from the bottom of my heart for taking part of your day and sharing it with me by listening to this amazing podcast episode. I would also like to thank our sponsors, St. Lucian Seamoss. Check them out and get some awesome Seamoss at www.stlucianseamoss.co. If you enjoyed this podcast and it was helpful, please share it with your loved ones or a friend and check out SavoyaSelfCare.com for more amazing wellness tips. Please also leave us a rating now on Apple Podcasts. Take a screenshot and send it to info at SavoyaSelfCare.com. We will reply with a gift as a grateful thank you. If you want to upgrade your healthy living and take it to the next level, be sure to join us next week. And remember, self-care is not selfish, it's self-love. Ciao for now.